I brought uh, a limited number of my books with me on the back table and some of the audio tapes of lectures I've given that relate to a variety of issues we're dealing with. One, one there is a talk by my wife uh, that, that the ladies might find helpful and the men might find it helpful also. I mean. <clears throat> For the rest of this, this afternoon, we've got about 35 minutes, I want to talk about some of the essential keys to finishing well. <clears throat> and this evening I want to devote because we don't have as long a session this evening. Is that right, Rick? Not quite. Not quite. But this evening I want to devote to talking about some of the obstacles to, to, to thriving and finishing well. But I don't, I don't doubt for one moment that most of us, if not all of us here, want to finish well. We want to thrive in our life with God, in our life with our families, with our kids, and and in our vocation, whether it's a full-time service or just a, a, a Christian leadership, we, we want to thrive. I don't doubt that for one moment. But in, there are some very uh, important obstacles to finishing well that uh, don't get talked about very much. And uh, I want to spend the evening uh, focusing on that. And then tomorrow we're going to get into some of the more practical issues like depression, anxiety, etc., that, that are now stalling us, that are getting in the way, they're becoming stumbling blocks for us. <clears throat> but, but for this time <clears throat> left for us, and I'm not going to run the PowerPoint on the screen, you've got the outline, it's fairly straightforward, and it'll be easier for me just to, to work through the, the topics. The first three I'm going to just mention briefly, um, and then focus a little more on the last three. And then I'm going to try and stop five or seven minutes before 4.30 and then we'll, we'll open it up for some questions that I can respond to or comments that you would like to make. <clears throat> what are some of the essential keys to finishing well? Now, I suppose we could generate a long list of these and say they are all important, but I, I want to focus just on these six. And the first of those and it brings me back to a point I made a little earlier, the point that Spurgeon was very strong on, and that is you don't neglect your person. If you neglect yourself, you're not going to thrive. If you're going to ne neglect your spirit, we know that. If your spiritual life is neglected, you're not going to thrive. That's an obvious one. But it goes beyond that. You, you see, in a sense, it's all about learning something. It's all about the lessons that God wants to teach us in this life. <clears throat> and the most important lesson we have to learn is the lesson about ourselves. Spurgeon was very strong on this point. The key person that God uses, he would say, the key person, the key tool that God uses, the key tool that God uses for building his kingdom is your person, yourself, the culture of your inner person. For 
some reason, and I don't know the, precisely why, God gives witness to this world, first through the dying of Christ on the cross, and then secondly, through the work he does in your heart and mine. That's what he gives witness to this world about. That's why we are, clay, that's why we are earthenware vessels, clay pots. We are earthenware vessels so that the glory can be his. If he had created us pretty perfect like angels, there'd be nothing to display. So you're t- you, you yourself, you are the two. It's all about you. Many of us are waiting for God to do some, waiting for an opportunity to do something great for God. God is waiting for an opportunity to do something great in us. A child, it's, it's you and me. We're in this game together. And if I can do my work in you, if my comfort, and, and the word comfort, by the way, in that first chapter of Second Corinthians, is not just about bereavement. It is, too, but that's not about bereavement. It, it means something broader than that. It, it's healing in a, in a total sense. It's comfort for my depression. Comfort for my anxiety. And I get it for myself first. Pastors don't get into trouble because they forget they are pastors. They get into trouble because they forget they are persons. You are the the tool that God uses. So don't neglect your person. That that flows over into issues of self-care and, and that is such a dirty word in Christian circles. I mean, I encounter the, the, the resistance to that all the time. And, and so later in, 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 in our sessions, towards the end, I, I need to do some other stuff first. I, I want to get, talk a little bit more in detail about self-care. This clay pot has to be carefully tended. Most of us, when we think of a clay pot, think of something like an urn that's been fired in a hot, hot, oven. I used to do um, a little bit of pottery, you know, and I've got, I've got my kiln, I built one for myself. You know, you make, get some clay and you shape it up and put it in there, and then it's as hard as rock, you know, you can't, can't even get rid of it after that. But that's not what, that's not what the image is all about. This is a fragile part. This is something that has to be taken care of. I, it reminds me of, you know, back in South Africa, when you, in the rural area, would often drive past a kraal, and there, <clears throat> around the kraal, the, the clay pots that the Africans use, uh, lined up around the hut, carefully looked after, kept slightly moist, because, see, they just made out of mud. Basically, make a coil, and you, you put in a circle, and you smooth it on the inside, and you better not let it all dry out, because it'll just crumble. 
And if you have to go and walk five or six miles to get water with one of those pots on your head, you do not set out on that journey if you know you haven't been taking care of that pot. Because you're going to get a shower. I mean, it's just going to come all over you. And that's the image. And self-care is crucial, critical. And the problem today with stress being as high as it is now, self-care has become an even more critical issue. Most of us don't sleep enough. So, key to finishing well, make sure that your theology is right and that you, you, you take care of your own person. The second uh, key, that I, I'm going to go through very quickly to get to the last three, don't be misled by motivational hazards. It, it's unfortunate in this day and age that most Christian leaders are caught up in doing things for God for the wrong reason. I have to challenge myself all the time. Why? Why do I accept Rick's invitation come all the way over here to be with you wonderful people? You know, why, why do I do it? Anyone have an answer? <laughs> Not going to get rich out of it, that's for sure. I, I no longer care for, I care much about people's approval. It was early in my life, it was important. No, I, you can be misled. You've got to ask yourself, why do I do this? And, and, and the answer has to be a, a correct one because many are in Christian ministry today, even lay people are doing it for the wrong reason. Their motive is all wrong. And you need to challenge that motive. I hope that I'm doing it just because God has told me to do it. The, the third key uh, is, is a faulty theology of ministry. This is somewhat related to the motivational hazard, but a faulty theology of ministry. I am a great believer in getting the, the importance of getting your theology straight. And I'm not just talking about pastors. I, I try to help my grandsons. I have my two oldest grandsons now. They're both in their early 20s. Wonderful Christian boys. Sad thing in their life happened uh, about 11 years ago when Richard, my son-in-law, who's a school teacher, was tragically killed on the freeway just up from our home, driving on his way to school to go and teach. He was flown in a helicopter back to USC, uh, the, the trauma center there. They didn't know he, who he was. His briefcase was in the trunk of his car. They just took him, didn't take his briefcase. Say so he was a John Doe lying with, on life support in the USC medical center for it was 12 hours, I think, <clears throat> before we found him. It was a, a horrible thing. And I, 
my, I, my daughter called me about 8 o'clock. It was midday when it happened. She called me around 8 o'clock in the evening and she said, Dad, I don't know where Richard is. I have no idea where he is. He hasn't come home from work. Here's a coach in his high school. He's always home at 5 o'clock. It's 8 o'clock, he hasn't come home. This is not like Richard. I said, honey, there's something wrong. Start to call her. I call all the hospitals. Finally, she called USC about 9.30 at night. And they said, yes, we've got, got a man here. We don't know who he is. Better come quick and see if he's your husband. Shannon called me back and said, Dad, will you go with me? Of course, my darling, I'll go with you. And, oh, I'll never forget that night, the two of us driving <coughs> through Los Angeles down to USC. Uh, it's a gang-riddled area. This is where all the shootings take place and it's a convenient hospital right there for them. And then we had to walk up and down the corridors. There are cubicles, cubicle upon cubicle, where there's some tragedy inside, looking at all the people until finally there we saw Richard. My daughter asked the young doctor, what hope is there? And the idiot, oh, I could have wrung his neck, said, oh, there's about a 5% chance. I'd looked at his chart his head had pierced his spine right through the cerebellum. You can't live. He should have just been honest, but he was too chicken. Too young, I suppose. So my daughter said, well, in that case, you've got to do it. Just try and do everything you can. And just prolong the agony for three more hours. Well, then I had to go home. I drove home four o'clock in the morning. I had to, my two grandsons were with my wife. I left them, we left them with her and I had to go and when they woke up that morning, didn't want them to go to school, I had to share with them that daddy died last night. Oh, it was a horrible, horrible time. Absolutely horrible time. But by the grace of God, that turned around. I feared for my, son, my grandsons. But oh, you, you have no idea how God steps in in those times. And they are, I, I, I don't think you'll find two finer young men anywhere. I'm sure they are. <laughs> I'm sure some of yours are. But I'm just talking as a grandfather. I'm so proud of those two boys. They love Jesus. And so one of the things I'm trying to do with them right now is they shape their future, you know, is, 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 is to challenge them. You know, why don't you need to get your theology straight here? It, it, and the one son looks like he's going into banking. That's, that's, that's a good calling. That can be a calling for God. But whatever you do, take with you into your banking a theology for that. Understand how you contribute to God's kingdom in that secular work. My other grandson wants to go into ministry. And I don't know whether to encourage him or not. <laughs> the trouble is, I know too much about pastors. I mean, I counsel them all day. I see the tragedies. I see how crazy some churches are. They are crazy. They're full of crazy people. Dysfunctional. <laughs> well, it, it, it was that way with the church at Corinth, by the way. It's never been anything but that because it's, the church is all about broken people who need healing. 
So he's thinking of you know, coming to Fuller. He's just about finished college. But the point I'm making is that we, we need to take seriously our theology of what, what... If you want to thrive in your calling, whatever it is, make sure you've worked out the theology for it. Know what, be clear about how, why it is God's plan for you. But then I want to come to the, the, the next four points, and I want to, I want to linger here for a moment. Because I, I, you know what? Thriving is all about getting the business of success and failure sorted out. It's all about that. It's all about getting your success and failure sorted out. We are in a culture that is very success-driven. Certainly in the United States. And, and, and many of us, what, what, what drives us through our life is this dream that somehow we'll be successful at something. There's a wonderful book, and if you... Yeah, you know, if you, if, you, if you want to do some reading in this area, I, I recommend a book by Bob Buford called Finishing Well. It's not a book for pastors so much as it is a book for Christians in general. It's all about finishing well. Bob Buford, he, he owned a whole chain of television stations in the United States. Very wealthy man. Sold them all. And has devoted himself now to he's called it Leadership Network in fact I got an email from him yesterday this guy Bob Buford asking me to come and do something for him in August but he wrote this book it's a phenomenal book because it points us back to the fact that success is not what the Christian life is all about <clears throat> there's a man who has been extremely successful it's not success that's important. It is significance that is important. And that's not unlike Rick Warren's emphasis that you've got to have a purpose for your life. Nowhere in Rick's book does he talk about how to be successful in your life. And if you get this wrong, if, if, if your life is being driven by a need for success, chances are you're not going to be very successful. Our, there are enormous hazards associated with success and these are not emphasized enough. And one of the things Buford does in his book, his book is, he, he interviewed 26 significant people to find out what, what it was that, that, that achieved that. People who were finishing well. And again and again and again, of the, these, there were 28, I'm sorry, not 24, 28 people he interviewed say again and again and again, the mistake I made at the beginning was I put success at the top of the list and all I wanted was to be successful. And that was my mistake. And many of them, halfway through their life, it took half a life, realized that it's not about success, it's about significance. I want to make a significance to this. I, I want to have a purpose that is significant in this life. 
And so he has coined, I like the phrase that he's coined, he's coined life one and life two. I love it. Life one is that period in your life up to about 45 or 50 years of age. When you are caught up with a drive to succeed and accomplish something. Then you grow up and come to your senses. <laughs> At about 45, 50. That, that's the end of the stupid period of your life. And at that point, more and more today, people are beginning to realize at about that age that, you know, I'm not going to, that this success stuff is not going to give me a, a, a significant life. Now I want to be significant. And he has coined the phrase, the second, the second life. The second life. And so the first life is when you are searching for, trying to define yourself. Because most of the drive for success is, is really about trying to define yourself, trying to find yourself, who am I? Trying to prove yourself. Then finally you get past that and you begin to focus on, on success. And, and Buford's book is a, is, a, is a wonderful book in that regard. So, we, so he talks about the first life, which is this quest for self-discovery. And then the second half, and he wrote a book called Second Half. And more and more people today, both men and women, are embracing this idea of the second half. Second chance even at, at achieving something uh, uh, significant for their lives. Now, uh, don't misunderstand me when I challenge notions of success. I, I, I don't want you to, 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 to it, 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 it's a lot of it is, is, is your motive. Why, why do you want it? But I, I can tell you this, I, 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 can, I can and tell you this, that if you pursue success passionately, there are enormous hazards that you face. Enormous hazards. A, you drive your stress level up. That's, I mean, that's, that's one of them. It, it, it is not easy. But, and, the, and the problem with this success drive from a theological perspective, the problem is that, <clears throat> that God is not interested. I, I, I can tell you, I, I, I believe this with all my heart, that God is not in the success business. He is in the refining business. Can you get the difference? God's in the refining business. I, I, I mean, do I have to quote scripture here? You know, the, 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 the refining of the gold, the, 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 where God takes and removes all the dirt. God's in the refining business. He is, he is trying to turn you into a masterpiece of what his grace can do. So God is not in the success business. He's in the refining business. And, but, so your theology of success, if you want to build a healthy theology of success, you've got to shift it toward 
a couple of important things. The first thing you've got to, you, you've got to shift it towards is, is to, to predicate it upon the idea of faithfulness. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thriving comes easiest when you're faithful. Well done, thou good and faithful service. Now, God does send success every now and again, but quite frankly, it is usually a bonus. When it's godly success, it's a bonus given to someone who has been faithful. The the, the, the second important thing about building a healthy theology of success, the first is to make sure that it's predicated upon faithfulness. The extent to which I am faithful to God's calling, whether it's to become a banker or an entrepreneur or anything else, if that is God's calling in my life and I am faithful to it, then I am achieving what God wants me to. But, But the second important principle is that I can only embrace success as a drive if it, if it includes the whole of my life. I'm, I'm a strong believer in success in holistically in my whole life. I, I, I do not believe that God blesses one in one's business so that you become highly successful while your personal life is shot, while your marriage is falling apart, where your kids are alienated from you. That you I, I don't believe it's godly success when you are successful just in one little narrow aspect of your life. That is not a godly success. It has to embrace the whole, not the part. And then thirdly, I would say that, uh, every, that a theology of success has to be balanced with a theology of failure. And this is one of my favorite topics. I love talking about failure. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is a hot topic for me. <clears throat> I was asked uh, a few years ago, in fact, I, I retired from the deanship in 19, when I was what about 12 years ago and then about 7 years ago I retired uh, from being a professor and, and retired as a senior professor as a sort of retired status I still teach, I teach more courses now than I ever taught when I was a full time professor but uh, that's because I don't have to go to faculty meetings and do any of that other stuff but one of the things, one of the honors they bestow on you, some of us when you retire is that they invite you to give the a graduation address a sermon and so I the year I retired because I was a former dean they gave me that honor rather than some of the other retiring faculty so I was invited to uh, to do the baccalaureate sermon now I, I, I must confess I became very anxious about that I what on earth do you preach about to a thousand students about to graduate. You know, Master of Divinities, PhDs in theology, doctors of psychology, missionologists, I mean, all of that. About 800 it was. 
uh, what do you preach about? I mean, and I struggled. I, you know, Lord, just give me a message. I mean, this is one of those situations where I'm going to just open my Bible. I mean, you preachers do that. You, you fall down where it is, and you, you know, and then God gave that to me. See, uh, and I couldn't. But finally, finally, I, I decided I was going to talk about failure. So my introduction goes something like this. You know, you, you have all learned wonderful things. You've got wonderful degrees. You're all ready to go and hit the road. And life is waiting for you. And you are going to have just a ball when you, when you get out there, right? And I said, but you know, frankly, I think we haven't taught you everything. There's one thing we have not taught you. So before you graduate from this seminary, I want to make sure that I tell you what it is and teach you a little bit about it. We have not taught you how to deal with failure. And I launched in on my favorite topic. <clears throat> they, they took my sermon and put it, published it in the book of baccalaureate sermons. So it, it, it made it, got its little uh, niche uh, there. But let me say this about <clears throat> a, a theology of failure. Uh, uh, one, you have to accept the inevitability of failure. Failure is part of God's purpose and plan. Any theology that, that insists that it's all about success is not a biblical theology. It's all about failure. God has a place for failure because if, if, if God's priority is shaping you and I into the sort of people he wants us to be, then guess what? We're not going to learn much from our successes. Success does not build character. Failure does. Now, I, I'm not suggesting that you go out and create some big failure in your life. <laughs> That's not what I am suggesting. That, that, that is not what I am suggesting. But, but failure, disappointment, rejection, divorce, dismissal, get fired. You get to the end of that first life, you know, 45, 50, and you haven't quite achieved what you hoped you would achieve. And this disillusionment comes upon you. I mean, failure takes many forms. I, for my text, uh, for, for the sermon, I, 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 I used that wonderful verse, where the, the disciples after the crucifixion, and they were despondent and didn't know what to do and couldn't make anything of this dying on the cross business. And so what do they do? They decide they're going to go fishing. Only thing they could do, only thing they knew what to do. Let's, um, Peter says, I'm going fishing. I'm going to go with you, John says. And there, there they are, the group of disciples in the boat. And they launch out. Everything seems dark, seemed like failure. All the whole plan of the gospel had failed. And that night they said, Well, at least we can go and catch fish, right? But then my text was, That night they caught no fish. Whew. I challenge you, come on students, just write, just, just put yourself in their place, you're in that boat. The car, that looks like the cross is the end of the road. 
Now you go back to doing what you think you know best. And you catch no fish. All night they fished. They caught nothing. But standing on the shore was Jesus. Put your net down on the other side. And the boats were so full of fish it started to sink. And Peter got out of the boat and started to walk to Jesus. You know, he sank down. But what a, what a you know, that night they caught no fish. And, and we're going to not catch fish. For us, yes, there are going to be many times we don't catch fish. And every time it goes, you know what you should do? Say, hallelujah, Lord. Praise God for every failure in your life. Because several things you need to know. One, that in God's economy there is no such thing as failure, only forced growth. Only forced growth. I could tell you my personal story. I can't tell you the whole story, but in a nutshell, I was about 28 years of age, a young engineer, climbing the ladder fast. I needed some advanced uh, coursework in calculus math because of some designs I was doing as an engineer. And I said to my boss, I need to go and take an advanced degree in mathematics. He says, sure, fine, I'll pay for it. Take whatever time you need. And I study for a whole year and I go in for an examination. Have you ever seen that Mr. Bean thing where he goes in to take his examination? That, That episode? Same thing. I fail horribly. I'm, I'm a math whiz. I get top prize in the country of South Africa for math in my matriculation exams. And, and I'm in this, and then I fail. And I leave that exam room and I, I just can't believe it. God, how could this happen to me? 28 years of age. My whole career depends on it. What I tell my boss, what I tell my wife. We have three young children. She watches, she has to bathe the kids in the evening because I've got to hit the books. I was, I was depressed. This is a way of segueing into the problem for the problem we're going to talk about tomorrow. I was deeply depressed. Couldn't make sense of it. You know, I didn't understand. Surely, with God, we are always successful, aren't we? Three months later, I'm sitting in my study at home, not knowing where to go or what to do, and I picked up a calendar from the university, and it falls, it literally falls open, and I look down here, and it says, Department of Psychology. And I start to read, and my heart is strangely warmed. <laughs> wow! We Christians, we're neglecting the side of our, of our humanness. You know, we're looking at all the people at church who need help. And I said, you know, this is, warms my heart. And so I immediately enrolled in a, in, in, in a degree in psychology. And nine years after that, I'm at Fuller Seminary on the faculty and my whole life now. My second life came at age 39. I was an early developer. (laughs) Came at age 39. Found my significance. Gave up being a successful engineer to achieve a significance rather than success. Now I ask you, I ask you, failing that examination, was it a failure? My child, not that way. Come, I want you this way. I just got in the back of the boat and I went for the ride. You see, it, it, it is 
in God's kingdom there is no such thing as failure. So failure <coughs> has to become a part an understanding of it. Now, learn all you can from your failure. Obviously. Bring God into your failure. And put your failures behind you. Move forward. With the confidence, with the confidence that he knows and makes it right. This evening I'll talk a little bit more about some of the obstacles. Um, but for now, do we have just a minute or two if there's anyone who would like to ask a question or raise, uh, raise an issue? Yes, sir? Yes. I tied it to? Implied? No. Yes. Stress is not a fallacy. It is a, it is a very real thing. But the, 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 the definition for stress that now is being used is, is that it is excessive arousal of the adrenal system, the fight or flight system. The excessive and prolonged arousal of the adrenal system. And uh, when I get into that topic, uh, the, 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 problem, the problem with stress is not how bad things are. I can assure you things were a lot bad in Paul's time. He was imprisoned, he was flogged, you know, he had a bad time. No, the, 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 it's not the bad things. It, it, it's the arousal of the adrenal system coming from the, what seems to be the good things of our life. And, and so we, we define stress in terms of how much adrenaline you're pumping, how, how, what the, your level of cortisol is. Because without adrenaline, cortisol, people with Addison's disease have severe adrenal deficiencies, really do not develop stress disease because they don't have that. So it, 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 it's all about the management of adrenaline and cortisol is where we would be going with that. But no, I, I did not mean to imply it was a fallacy. It's a very serious thing. But most of us are looking for the stress in our lives in the wrong places. Uh, and, and that's where we, we will go with that. Uh, any other question? Yes. I'm sorry, I'm having difficulty hearing you. Sorry. Earlier this afternoon, you talked about um, living within the boundaries of God's design. Living within the boundary of God's design. Yes. What do you mean exactly by box? And what does it mean? By, by box, I mean is that, <clears throat> that the, 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 the human frame is designed to engage in a certain amount of activity, physical activity. At a certain point, we become exhausted. That's, that's the box. The, the, the human body needs certain nurturing, needs a certain amount of sleep, needs, uh, needs recovery time. The biggest problem with stress today is the decline in recovery time. The, the human body is a machine with a duty cycle of about 25%. In other words, uh, 
that's um, a phrase used in engineering that, that, you can, that no, no motors, very few engines are designed to run 100% of the time. So we know that our need for sleep uh, has, is, is an important recovery period. And we have robbed sleep. Modern day life has diminished the amount of sleep. One of the great myths being perpetrated within Christian circles is that we, we, we don't need as much sleep as we think we do. That is a dangerous myth and I will quote the, the data to support that. So it's the lack of recovery time. That's the problem. And, and living outside the box means that you're not, you're, not, uh, you're not experiencing enough sleep. You're not getting the, the, the self-care. You're not doing the self-nurturing. Um, your, your adrenaline is too high. It's causing damage. It causes damage to the cardiovascular system. I, I had my bypass surgery three years ago. I know all about that. I'm part of the, we call it Fuller, we call it the zipper club. <laughs> and, and people like Charles Van Engen and uh, all, all, Chuck Kraft, all, all the really, I'm, I'm glad to be a part of that group because they are the really, you know, good guys. But, but we, we, we suffer from heart disease. We, and, and now, because of our excessive adrenaline cortisol, we have a, a serious epidemic of depression and anxiety disorders, addictions, and a long list of consequences. And that's not going to change. So somehow we have to learn to live within those boundaries. How do we manage our adrenaline so as to avoid the damage that is being caused in, in all these areas and that's what we will be getting into tomorrow. So this is a very good question. Thank you. I didn't really define what I meant. Last question and then we need to... Yes, at the back. Well, can you say what the link is the they, they are cousins. Uh, it, it is, it is, they are cousins. They are fairly highly correlated. In other words, whenever adrenaline, the, the adrenal glands have 57 hormones. And one group is in the adrenaline group and the other is in the cortisol group. They're two major categories. And adrenaline and cortisol represent these two groups. In, in a sudden emergency, like I'm, I think of that school in, in Virginia, you know, when that first shot went off, every, their adrenal systems spring up, right? And for the, the first surge is always adrenaline because that helps you to fight or flee. Ten minutes later, cortisol surges. And cortisol goes to the brain. And for the first 14 days after that, it helps to mobilize the body to be more efficient and effective in dealing with the crisis. And God has designed us, if, if the crisis lasts longer than 14 days, this system turns against you and cortisol becomes a poison. And we all, we, the stress of modern day is way past the 14-day box, which is the problem which is a problem. But cortisol and adrenaline go together. They are cousins. Uh, it's not until fairly recently, last four or five years, that we have come to understand how important cortisol is. And now in the literature, almost every day in the newspaper, you'll find an article, you'll find some report about cortisol. 
because it, it is the emotional disruptor whereas adrenaline is the physical disruptor and uh, well I'm getting a little ahead of myself but that was the question and if that will give you something to sleep on thank you for that okay well, well, well God bless you all we'll, we'll take a break now and um, let, let me just close in a word of prayer uh, Father cover us with your care your spirit uh, keep our hearts uh, focused and, and above all uh, may, may we respond to your voice if you're speaking to us Lord give us the courage to be obedient in Jesus name Amen. Thank you. Have a good dinner.